What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Vince Gironda. This is a legend in the field. If you're not familiar with him, this is going to be a great opportunity to get to know one of the people that probably had the most influence that we don't know of. Vince Gironda was a legend in regards to training programming, nutrition, supplementation, huge influence, fired up. We have an opportunity to talk about them. Myself, Rob Jacobs, and Corey Hobbs. This is a really good episode. If you are not a member, you want to become a member for this one because not only do we have the web show version of this, we have the transcripts, we have the notes and resources, and we have a special additional video breaking down some of his protocols featured on the membership platform. So become a member of the PH podcast membership get access to all of our web shows, all of the resources and articles and modules associated with it. It is a unbelievable value. You will not regret it. All right, let's talk about some Vince Gironda. All right, Tim, we got a pretty fun topic lined up for today with Vince Gironda, kind of a legend, but if anyone doesn't know, who is he and why are we talking about him? Vince was a pretty historic figure in physical culture and bodybuilding. For the folks out there that maybe get a taste of this and really want to learn more about them, I got a couple books that I think would be very helpful. Muscle, Smoke, and Mirrors, Volume 2. There's three volumes. This one's a good one. This is a pretty good anthology of like all physical culture, health, and fitness. Great history. I mean, it's a first person's account with uh, Randy Roach, but you know, it's also a it's also a pretty good deep dive into some of the things and how cyclical they are. And then inside Vince's locker, which you can get on his website kind of like a homage to Vince Gironda and then he's actually got like some just a handful of YouTube videos that you can probably check out so Vince was more of a bodybuilding coach he set the stage for what I consider more the modern male aesthetic especially like in Hollywood and cinema there's mm-hmm. a a notion that you know things got amplified right if you look at male leads in the 40s and 50s to like the 60s and 70s there was a dramatic transformation and it started turning into big lead roles that started working out more having more muscular tone and then it got you know really ramped in the 80s right the the stallone the schwarzenegger the the appearance of the van dams the ivan drago those guys Dolph lundgren i mean it became this whole like extreme amplification of of essentially what a male or a modern day male looks like. And if you look through some of the old books, and so Muscle Smoke and Mirrors is a really good resource. Muscle Town USA goes over all of York, Pennsylvania. But a lot of it goes into the, the, the message that you are underdeveloped, you aren't masculine, and you can develop the physique and the confidence through weight training, right? Like you have this capacity and power to change your life and be more of whatever it is that you aren't. And that was really amplified with, you know, a guy like Vince Gironda getting these celebrities trained. So you see guys like Bill Pearl or Carl Weathers or a lot of other like really, really muscular people working in movie and cinema. And that really transcended the the mindset of what like health and vitality should look like. And then then it was like the Joe Weeders of the world that really took it from, hey, America shouldn't focus on weightlifting, which for the record, a lot of people don't realize America was the pretty much the standard in weightlifting, snatch, clean, and jerk for pretty much the first part of the, the, 20, the 20th century. Yeah, we were really ahead of the curve. I mean, it was like us. And then when Russia became Soviet Union, they started really closing the gap and then they kind of took it and ran with it. And then more more communist-based countries really looked at it as like, all right, if we just play the numbers game, we start pumping a lot of people into this. And two, what an ultimate symbol of strength and unity is uh, having the strongest people in the world compete for your country and getting gold medals. And that's why there's a big focal point for Russia to kind of give this this image and homage to being stronger than every other country. But they were just a numbers game. So there's a lot more registered weightliftings in, in Russia, now China, and these superpowers in terms of weightlifting than there are America. I mean, it's like 10x the number of Chinese weightlifters registered than they are American. And you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. But at a certain point, America was the, the top in the country, top in the world country in weightlifting. I mean, we were 
very much so ahead of everyone else. And guy like Joe Weider with the kind of the, the momentum a guy like Vince Gironda created made bodybuilding more of the focal point. So when we're looking at the, the transition and I'm kind of getting into a tangent here, but the looking at the history of this, of we were very much so focused on weightlifting for a long time. And a lot of the at home gym concepts or strength training protocols were very, our protocols were very calisthenic based, a lot of kettlebells, a lot of clubs, a lot of different strongman type of stuff, stuff you can do around the house, stuff you can do at home. These like one in one size fits all kits that you can go into your garage and just start adding progressive overload and doing simple things. There's guys like Anthony Dottillo who basically just mastered the art of a barbell in a basement and just getting massive. Paul Anderson, some other guys like Doug Hartburn's Canadian, but he's another really good example of a North American weightlifter that was just figuring it out and really kind of understanding that. But it had like a counterculture effect and a taboo effect. And as it started to transcend from weightlifting focus and international competition to everybody could look better. And which if you think about it, that has a much bigger reach than weightlifting, right? Thinking about the success of snatch and clean and jerk from people getting introduced to weightlifting, it's a pretty high barrier of entry for a lot of people, right? You need a lot of athleticism, you need a lot of skill, you need a lot of mobility, you need a lot of just overall strength. And it's hard. It's a hard sport. It's very, very difficult to get good at that. Versus bodybuilding, you go through one session, you feel muscle soreness, you've got a, almost a cause and effect relationship in that. And then you can see tangibly the change in your body composition when you really start to focus on it. And as the, as that like kind of transition from, okay, now you aren't the person you want to be. And you have like Charles Atlas doing advertisements and like, and magazines and newspapers of like getting kicks or sand kicked in your face by a bully and your girlfriend leaves you for the bully. You go strength train in your garage, you get stronger. And then you're the guy taking back the girl, that image to weightlifting as the forefront is the ultimate antithesis of, of masculinity and strength to a guy like Vince Gironda, Joe Weider, even like uh, some other guys like Ray O'Blair, we'll talk about here in this of this pretense of a much more scalable, attainable, kind of fit with the fit with the mantra of very like, I don't want to say vanity, but a lot of aesthetics are driven from the idea of insecurity and the perception of self-improvement. But Vince really tapped into that. And he really set the stage for what is now the foundation of modern programming, looking at aesthetics and bodybuilding. And and it went into another curve with Arthur Jones and some other folks, which would be a cool podcast to go into as well. But for Vince, you know, a lot of the things that we look at and what is the symmetry aspect and what's the what's the understanding of developing certain muscles to create shape and form of an aesthetic of this V taper and a wide, broad shoulders and a narrow, skinny waist and a sweeping quad muscle. And it was all from Vince. And he created machines or fabricated machines just off his own intuition and engineering skill. He created programs and protocols based off of what's going to have the best impact on aesthetics, created a lot of nutrition and supplemental protocols that have still stood the test of time. I mean, you think about amino acids, it's, it's from Vince Gironda and Ray O'Blair. And that's something that's not taken any loss in momentum since he created it. I mean, a lot of times we lose sight of where a lot of these original ideas came from. And sometimes it's, yeah, he was taking that idea from somewhere else. And some of the, the best people in our history are just essentially better advertisers or people that can compile stuff. And we deal with it all the time today, right? We see mm-hmm. Peter Atia and Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss as the voices of, and even Joe Rogan of physical health. Uh, they have no formal training in strength, conditioning, exercise, right. physiology, biomechanics, or the latter. They're just taking secondhand information and parlaying that as their own, which is fine. It's getting momentum and traction. And I'd rather see people be more aware through them. But the same thing Vince did. And the same thing, like a guy like Perry Rader, who who's the editor-in-chief and lead writer for Iron Man magazine, which led into Joe Weider and his whole publication series between like muscle and fitness and and all the other bodybuilding like magazines that he created. But Vince is a seminal figure in the in the history of physical culture, bodybuilding, 
strength and conditioning. Guys like Charles Poliquin, you know, will be will would be the first to tell you if he was still alive that a lot of his ideas and concepts came from a guy like Vince Ronda. And you also see a lot of Charles and Vince. It's very charismatic, very out, very outgoing, polarizing figure. It's like a, a very binary absolute. Like if it's not my way, it's wrong. And that has an impact, right? Like that's a very very classic model of creating influence and intrigue and insight, right? The the generic, it depends. It's very context dependent. That doesn't have as much ability to get a lot of polarizing responses as a very absolute statement. Like if you're not doing this protocol or program or doing this nutrition plan, you're an idiot kind of mentality. Vince is kind of one of the forefathers of that, especially in the health and fitness space. And he was extremely influential with the whole entire space that we're in now between strength conditioning, health and fitness, figure, bodybuilding, whatever you want to classify it as. But this whole fear of health and fitness, it's a trillion dollar industry. And Vince was one of the first format, the first organizers of that and the first influences that we've had. So along with that big influence that Vince has had, you mentioned a bunch of things there like supplement protocols, nutrition protocol, protocols, weightlifting, obviously looking for that physique. What are the big methods we should be keying in on? Yeah, with, with Vince, it was all about aesthetic, right? So it was all about how to get this like paper thin level of, of body composition, right? This basically almost like saran wrap wrapping your body. So from a methodology, it was really centered a lot on okay, well, where does that muscle originate and how does it insert and what's the line of pull? So how do I create tension within that muscle? So, I mean, he was one of the first really guys to find isolation exercises to create this impact from an aesthetic and then find really creative ways to load it through either free weight or fabricating machines. So a lot of the machines you see today from either like a guy like Arthur Jones or a guy like Vince Gironda going to a local wed- welder in North Hollywood and saying, hey, can you put this together for me so I can train this muscle group and tinkering and figuring it out, which is pretty impressive if you think about it. Yeah. Then then compiling that into a protocol, right? So his famous protocol is 8x8, eight eight, and it was always density. It was never progressive overload. It was how fast can I get 64 reps done, right? So one of the things we'll talk about is a – a really great developer of the quad is the hack squad, right? A fit. He, I mean, he had these fixed bars. So I'm pretty sure he created the fixed bar if that memory serves correct correctly, but you take a fixed barbell and you stand on a plot piece of plywood, a two by four, and you just basically do 64 reps broken up eight by eight as quickly as possible with the maximal weight you can hit for eight with minimal rest. And the idea is hypertrophy, body composition. The, he always said that if he can get through that in a certain period of time, let's say under six minutes, his fitness, his strength, his muscular size and definition was always going to be show ready. And that, just that's the way the guy thought, right? It was a extremely, extremely, I think, ahead of the curve mentality. That protocol in itself, though, leads into this like other mindset of Okay, well, how are we progressing things to this day? Because it, it became this evolution, right? Where guys like Vince Gironda, Bob Hoffman, Anthony Dottillo, Paul Anderson, Doug Hepburn, you know, these guys were just kind of like winging it, right? They were just figuring it out on the fly, not really much outside influence, but just having this little incubator of health and fitness and developing muscle. And, you know, much like what Louis Simmons did in West Side of like, I don't necessarily connect with the powerlifting world and i'm almost gonna completely recreate a system to create people really strong and the results spoke for themselves i mean abijav in uh, bulgaria of like well if russia's doing two sessions a day we're gonna figure out how to get four to eight you know that like how do you just completely change change it right you're almost taking this extreme outlier perspective and as it starts to unfold you know, one of the things that starts to progress is it gets mainstream eventually, right? This Vince's ideas get into publications and get into articles and get into magazines and Iron Man magazine, health and fitness, muscle and fitness, all these different publications started doing that. And that's what Vince's locker is, is basically all of his articles, all of his like little anecdotes, like compiled into a major book. And you see his like evolution and his ideas, but you also see that taking momentum and hitting the mainstream, which is an interesting 
kind of dynamic. If you think about it, it's we're watching in live form by reading these articles of how this is getting into some sort of narrative that we all follow to this day. And then it hits this like apex of whatever his philosophy is. And then it starts to reach outside of it. And maybe between now we have television, we have different formats, like at home tapes that you can follow. All these different mediums started to take kind of unpack and unfold. And guys like Arthur Jones started creating concepts like HIT, high intensity training, which is one set to failure and trying to take a muscle group to absolute exhaustion by going through all three forms of contraction between concentric, isometric, and eccentric strength. And then following that with all you need is one set coming back the next week and trying to make some sort of progression. And that took a lot of weight. And then all of a sudden now, like a guy like Bill Kramer comes in in the nineties the and says that one set to failure is not a really well thought out method. We need multiple sets to stimulate higher threshold motor units to get better rate coding, synchronization, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're looking at this like kind of like full circle thing. We have a weird weird space with the internet where people are just grabbing and pulling stuff and just kind of like cherry picking ideas that really resonate or connect with them or using a lot of anecdotal or essentially observational bias of like, Oh, that guy's Jack. So I'll just follow what he's doing or she's doing. And I think there's a, a loss in that. We saw with CrossFit, they just started using their own nomenclature and making things up, which kind of insulting to the rest of the industry, but not really their fault if we don't really have a very firm foundation of where that information came from and why that foundation of knowledge and nomenclature and principles is really well established. But now we see it of we're in this spot where you see a lot of generic templates that are coming up with like, well, no one's claiming this. I will just claim it as my own, which is kind of sad considering guys like Vince Gironda have established this stuff 50, 60 years ago. And it was, it was really well like positioned then. And instead of like increasing and expanding on the idea, we've taken multiple steps back, right? We've, we've regressed in a lot of the ways because one of the things that's so hard is people will just cherry pick certain methods with no real follow through and lose one of the more important principles of progressive overload. And just like Vince would say, if I can do eight sets of eight and under a certain period of time, I know I'm going to have a great body composition, a lot of muscular density and a lot of muscular shape and form that led into, Hey, how am I going to get from that certain period of time backwards? And that's the foundation of progressive overload, right? Eventually it's got to start to apex into something. And a lot of people just kind of just blindly do random things and not really have any rhyme or reason for doing it with no real transition from one week to the next. So if Vince's logic was flawed, at least he backed it up with progression and seeing if it actually reached an outcome that was in his wheelhouse or what he was aspiring to do. I find now we've kind of lost sight of the one thing that's absolutely critical for any program and its efficacy would be do you actually have some sort of progression? Do you have a logic? Do you have a rationale? Like, are you choosing exercises? I, I see a lot of poorly applied physics and engineering to novelty with a lot of exercise selection. And I, I would argue that with Vince's, and maybe I'm putting up too high on a pedestal, at least he's going off the association with, did this actually lead to better shape or muscular definition in a specific, specific area, yes or no? Just like Anthony Dottillo is talking about certain progressions of a single double, triple, or quadruple progression between intensity, volume, density, or even this other element of combining them. He had an idea of, okay, well, I'm going to test and retest this. Same thing with Vince. I'm going to come up with different angles, understand origins, insertions, understand anatomy, understand this concept of physiology, and I'm going to start to create structure to my programming. You know, you see either a random ad hoc-ish type of programming from a periodization, sets, reps, volume, intensity kind of thing. And then the other end, you see this massive, like, just creating novelty with no real understanding of physics. Like, for instance, I just saw my video this morning, someone doing a bicep curl with their arms flexed. And he's saying it's a great way to create contraction. Yeah, like biceps in a shortened, shortened position. And you might be able to get a little bit more of that peak, but you're also very unstable. And it's also a lot of recruitment on that anterior delt. So in theory, yes, you are in a shortened position. You might be able to develop this. Now, the, maybe the, one of those peaks of the bicep but you're also going to be limited by the stabilization and the recruitment of that shoulder and the strength there. So you have to drastically lower the weight. You're probably not going to get enough of that. And then the other part, it's 
all we're doing is pulling an insertion closer to the origin. So if I don't have much tension by the external load is now vertically there, right? So holding a easy bar and the load is there, the line of pull is not really much, right? So over here to here, so this is pointless, right? This is, does nothing. But that's just a certain thing of like, yeah, it's different, it's unique, it's not really there, it's probably really hard, but it's a pointless exercise if you're trying to work your biceps, which that wouldn't be the logic Vince would apply. Right. right. It's got to make sense from, do I feel the muscle? Do I am applying physics? Am I applying engineering principles? Do I have a really good understanding of what the purpose is in there? But now it's just like that, that I would say that we haven't made much progress as an industry based off of social media standards and a lot of influence of that. And a lot of people are just doing stupid, really poorly thought out things. And I find that sad. And this is probably a really good jump off point to talk about why Vince is there. Vince is so important. And Maybe circle back to foundational principles and get someone that has a really good established mindset and framework and then learn to build off of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not even necessarily so much about Vince's methods or his protocols as much as it is about the way he thought and the way he looked at things in terms of understanding physiology and physics. Mm -hmm. For sure. And then as far as the methods, obviously, it's big into bodybuilding. That's, That's where it all started. So is there situations where... We, in our settings, like team sports, big group settings, may use more or may not want to use some of those protocols. Well, I think one of the more underrated things in team sports is body composition and, and lean muscle mass, as well as, to be honest, the, we don't want people who look like Tarzan and play like the opposite of Tarzan, but mm-hmm. we do want people to feel confident with what they're doing, right? And football, basketball, You'd be even wrestling or any other sport, like swimming. Like, I I can't tell you how much the aesthetic is a part of that athlete's experience and what they're doing, right? So if if they really don't materialize in terms of them improving their physical appearance, they're probably not really going to associate with what they're doing is that valuable. And that's just the honest truth, right? And yeah, I mean, we all know that the functionality of having a bodybuilder like aesthetic is probably not conducive to a lot of sports but we also see a guy or a girl that's has a really well physique really well developed physique they're probably going to get the association that they're maybe better and the Mm -hmm. confidence that person has is that okay the the program worked the discipline worked you know there's plenty of athletes in the history of football and basketball they're like okay that's that's a dude and I do think there's an element from that and what we can tie into training. And I, I, there's another component. And, you know, if you look at a lot of Brad Schoenfield's work and the talking about hypertrophy and, hey, it's coming from a multiple, multiple mechanisms, whether it's a myofibril breaking down or a sarcoplasmic increasing metabolic stress and cellular swelling, that there's not a one linear path to increasing lean muscle mass. And I do think it's a misconception to say that we can follow this Verkashenki, Zatiorski, like type one, type two muscle fiber hypertrophy, and it's either unfunctional or functional. I just feel like hypertrophy is is going to be a multivariate thing, and it's going to come from a multitude of things. And improving endocrine response, improving overall muscular breaking down, and increasing the structural or the tensile strength of that muscle, and adding more sarcomeres. That's all part of it, but. When we go back to looking at traditional bodybuilding protocols, it's not a very linear thing either, right? You have a lot of extremes. You know, we can go into like a Dorian Yates who followed HIT protocol with more free weight oriented movements. And that was like a very similar to Arthur Jones's early programs with Casey Viator. And it took a little bit of a different turn when he really tried to push machines and got into it with, hey, I want to really push this in that direction with Kim Wood and Ellington Darden and Mike Menser. Then we can look at, you know, other bodybuilders like Bill Pearl he used to do a circuit of one set of 20. Frank Zane was very similar to that. You can read Mike, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, which is kind of Joe Weider inspired of, well, if I can get them going to the gym more often and doing a body part split, they're probably going to buy more protein and supplements. Yeah. Not saying it's like completely like a misguided approach, but if I'm going to the gym six times a day and I need to take certain pre intra and post-workout supplements, I'm taking maybe three times the amount that I normally would if I'm going to do a program 
that like Bob Hoffman or Tommy Kono or someone was preaching. This is a great way to add physical size and strength and muscular development. Like Tommy Kono is an interesting story there. Like our last American gold medalist, as well as a championship bodybuilder. I mean, the guy was Mr. I think he won Mr. Universe and he won a gold medal in the Olympics for weightlifting. And like Arthur Grimmick was another great guy from York Barbell that was routinely winning bodybuilding competitions, competing in international stage and weightlifting. And all these guys would be three day, four day programs, tops. And mm -hmm. then it starts to, oh, wow, if I get them going to the gym two or three more times, they simply buy more things and they're more just better customer, right? If I'm a personal trainer, it behooves me to say, you should go six times a week if you really want to get this. And then it started taking this turn of, well, how do you accommodate doing six days of programming? And how do you really associate that? And then you just go body part, because if I'm stressing a muscle group one time a week, maybe twice, it's a lot easier to tolerate than doing a total body, very compound, very close kinetic chain movement that many times a week, right? So there comes this continuum. If I'm going to do very high CNS, very high threshold exercises, my bandwidth or capacity to do that more than three times a week for normal general populations, it's pretty small versus the other end. If I go six times a week based off some pretense that I want to just build momentum or a routine, or I can sell more things, then I'm gonna have to break it down to body part. And we're stuck as strength coaches looking at, well, where does that fit in with us? Right. And the, from a programming split, that's a unique aspect. And that's something to really follow through, but there's other methods and, my, and kind of ideas that we can look through, right? We can look at, a conjugate method of doing you know, power, relative strength, and then hypertrophy. Or we can look at a concurrent of having a power or relative strength or hypertrophy day. And within those days, and we're looking at this more aesthetic, increasing lean muscle mass, targeting specific tissues or muscle groups, we can tie into that window of either a conjugate end of the workout or a concurrent specific day workout or even looking at it, certain accumulation versus intensification blocks where I'm targeting in a specific mesocycle, a certain muscle or a certain muscular development. Okay, well, that might be the window to do that. And you as a strength coach probably be better served to look at what is the routine or the, or the microcycle orientation I want to develop. And then how can I insert certain methods? And maybe there's an opportunity to do an eight by eight in that situation right? Where I'm at the end of a workout, I really want to get this. I want to get something impactful to finish this up. I want to get some density. I want to get a lot of cellular swelling. I want to get a lot of metabolic stress. I want to get something where the guys walk out of here, they feel it. And then you look at it, well, I could do that with maybe a pull up or a body or a close grip bench and really get a lot of, I really target a lot of stress in that area. But you might realize that Someone be able to do close grip branch and pull up for that much volume in a period of time might be small. So then I'd look at, okay, well, what machines might facilitate that? Can I do a lap pull down? Can I do a machine row? Can I do a chest press? Can I do dumbbell bench? Can I do something that's specifically designed to create tension in a muscle group that facilitates that specific quality that I'm trying to develop? And that's where we connect the dots. It's not saying rewrite your pro entire program or completely scratch everything you're doing. It's just finding logical points to insert these things into and based on the fundament fun fundamental principles that Vince and the guys since then have kind of been saying all along. It's, it's just got to make sense to the larger, larger, more aggregate system. Right. I mean, that's, you've nailed it. I'm sure that's what Vince would tell you is like, figure out where it fits into your system and what you want to accomplish. Start with the goal in mind and then work backwards from there. Yeah. And there's also another component here too, where I think we need to be really honest with about this. Uh, there's probably a lot of bad things about Vince Duranda that we need to accept as well. You know, and, and I do think there's an element of a lot of the people that we are foundationally built upon are probably not the best people in the world, right? There was our physical culture is, is one that was taboo, right? The, the folks that were focused on vanity and aesthetic were self-absorbed, insecure, probably really like, but there were also trailblazers and anyone who's different, anyone who's creative, anyone who's willing to step away from the, the proverbial tribe or group has a little different, different vibe to them. And there's a perception associated bias with that. But Vince was probably a person that if you're going to look back at the 
the the full totality of it. His contributions was really positive, but there's also elements of maybe not the best person, which is part of this, right? We can't deny the history of that and with all the good, right? So when you right. go through inside Vince's locker, it's going to give this great portrayal of him and how smart he was and how much of a genius he was. Then you go through other resources like pretty much or muscle smoke and mirrors and how he had some some demons and he had trouble he trouble with alcohol and and did some out did some stuff that were potentially really dangerous and toxic to the, him and those around him you know okay well that's part of the history too and there's maybe a reason why he isn't put as high on a pedestal as he should be because mm-hmm. of the other elements so when we're looking through this the you know never meet your heroes but understand they're human and their ideas and their concepts are what's really valuable Maybe not him. He's not a demigod. He's not a god. He's not an oracle. He's just a guy who's really smart and came up with some really good ideas. And that's good enough right now. And Rob's going to talk a lot more about how he's influenced him here in a second. But, you know, I want everyone who's listening to this to go, okay, like, here's a really good resource that I can pull some great stuff from and learn about our history. But also, too, that like everybody, that he's got flaws and he's human. Yeah. I mean, I thought this was awesome. Really great history lesson. We covered the good, the bad, the ugly. It was a lot of fun. And I know Rob's got a lot of stuff, good stuff to say about Vince Toronto and what what his methods are bringing to the table. Oh, yeah. All right, Corey. All right, Rob, we got Vince Toronto on the docket today. I'm going to open up with how has Vince influenced you as a strength conditioning coach? It's it's been interesting. So I think the easiest way to describe it would be getting more from less. You know, so I've always been trained to failure with Charles and, you know, every set needs to be max effort. Don't not a lot of reps in the tank, that sort of strategy. But all of that, when you look at like your training split, right, all that stuff goes together, you know, like train to failure, you train no reps in the tank, you're going to train arms probably once every five to seven days. Whereas you start looking at Vince's stuff, you're going to train with some reps in the tank, but you may train the same exercise for the same muscle group every other day for 21 days in a row, right? So those you start to look at how some of these systems actually work. Cause some people would take that concept of, all right, we'll train to reps in the tank and we'll do eight by eight for arms on Monday and only Monday for three weeks, as opposed to, you know, when you do something like most of Geronda stuff are, is either like every other day or, or the really the first like triple split. So, you know, even then you're seeing it twice in, four days or twice in six days with those different splits. And, and the whole thing I think with Vince and and his methods and even really every method, right. That was a bit wacky that people try to crap on is that, well, are you doing everything? Are you doing that actual system or that actual method? Or are you just saying, all right, I'm going to pick eight by eight, this block and do it, you know, this way. Well, you know, it's, it's different, right? You're not, you're not eating the way he would eat for that program. You're not training the same split. You're not, you're changing exercises too often. So all of those things have to go together. And once you do everything, these systems, you know, these are kind of randomized systems actually do really like actually work. Unpacking his system. If you were going to encapsulate Vince's system or philosophy into a short phrase, what would that be? density in terms of the session, right? Getting, getting the most work in, in the least amount of time, you know, his rest breaks weren't necessarily timed. They'd usually, he would either program, you know, six deep breaths or, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the writings from the guys that he was coaching in person would just say, my rest break was basically as long as it took me to walk to the water fountain, grab a quick swig, come back and hit it, which also goes with that, you know, you didn't do six reps with an eight RM. So density with that, and then I don't want to say perfection, but like everything dialed in, right? Like a lot of similarities with Charles, like you're either going to do it or you're not. So if you don't stick to what the nutrition plan is, don't expect to get the results. If you're going to pollute the training program, don't expect to get the results. So actually precision, that's the best word, precision. That's a, I, I, so that's an interesting thing. Would you say at the time he was one of the first pundits for aggressive discipline like all in because i mean most of the physical culture stuff up until this point even probably well past it were people doing this as a hobby of supplemental to their normal everyday life you know they were working full-time jobs they were just pursuing a healthier lifestyle or aesthetic and that demanding of perfection was that 
something that you think he was way ahead on and almost initiated that like all in mentality? I think absolutely. Right. He was like one of the feedbacks from the judges with some of his shows was, you know, the reason he didn't win is he was actually too vascular, too lean. And, you know, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but when you, when you start to look at his, you know, his photos and cause even his posing, right. With the, the a dancer background and, and some of those kinds of stuntman background, all that stuff that he had, like his, his posing routines were different than most people. And one of the things he would say is that it's not, it's not the pose but it's what you do from pose to pose and how you move from pose to pose on stage that actually, you know, can, can have a bigger impact. Right. And so he was, he was the first on a lot of that stuff, the first to be rigid with diets. Cause you look at diets in the, the early silver, I guess the silver and the bronze era, you know, there were, they were basically just balanced. Nobody was, nobody had gone one extreme or the other. Right. And then Vince did, didn't, didn't necessarily go to extremes because all of his diets were, were specific, right? You would do the steak and eggs diet for a, a finite amount of time to reach an objective, right? The people look at some of those diets and they're like, well, that's not sustainable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're doing that for like a max of eight to 12 weeks to be as shredded as possible to step on stage. You're not doing it for, you know, metabolic dysfunction and to cure diabetes and all these like reasons that people want to jam in. Like that's the reason he did it to get shredded. That was it. Right. So there's, you know, there's lots of that kind of stuff to maximize hormones, to maximize your ability to train hard without drugs. And like those are, I think, where, where a lot of the magic is with his stuff is looking at some of the results he got with guys that that didn't do drugs. I mean, even if you just looked at him and his results outside of anybody else that he worked with, like those are great results with those plans, you know. It's funny, the the idea around how revolutionary just committing was, which kind of gets into the next level of what do you think some of the protocols and methods, whether he gets credit for it or not, was something that he created directly and has still a massive influence on what we do today? Well, this I think the most obvious one is what German volume training, right? So Vince was definitely the first guy who brought any sort of like 10 sets of 10 to the United States, right? Cause that was, he was doing that in the, I'm pretty sure the sixties, definitely seventies, but you know, before Charles and it's not really, nobody really knows whether he got it from the Germans and brought it here or if there was any influence, you know, who knows, but like that, you know, that's one. And then that whole, the 10 by 10, the eight by eight, the six by six, Vince was one of the first guys to really introduce like back offsets. So if you look at something like 10, eight, six, 15, that was him. What is it? Lengthened partials are now like the rage and in, in weightlifting. And if you are bodybuilding, if you look at Geronda's writings, he was doing lengthened partials in the fifties and the sixties. Well, before all that crap today, right? He was using slow eccentrics, slow concentrics, constant tension, not locking out at the top, right? With, I think he would call it like, don't, don't let it synapse. Like don't lock out, take a break, all those sorts of things, you know, and it, like he didn't necessarily know the some of the science that he would cite back then wasn't necessarily 100% accurate, but conceptually and result-wise was spot on, you know, simply because we just didn't know back then all the, all the stuff we know now. Yeah. So with that being said, is there anything that you think that he came up with that you read was like now based off having more knowledge or ability to actually objectively evaluate that was way off base? So one thing that, that always stands out is Vince was one of those guys that would say, you know, your body can't use more than whatever his number was, 20 or 25 grams of protein at once, which is not necessarily wrong, but it's not accurate. And some of the reasonings for that are probably not accurate. And what we know now is that you, whatever protein you eat, you will use it. Yeah. So if you eat 60 grams, even if you only use 20 right now, you're going to use the other 40 at some point as you go, you don't waste protein. It's not, it's not discarded. So I think that's, that's definitely the one that stands out. And then there's maybe some exercise stuff that, that are really just a like philosophical difference in terms of not, not squatting, but you know, again, he would do, he would do hip dominant power lifting squats if somebody wanted thicker hips, but also the reason he, he developed the sissy squat and would do the squatting that he did or, 
or wouldn't do was because to not thicken the waist and thicken the hips. So, you know, you got to sort of put those pieces together where some things, yeah, they weren't necessarily accurate or uh, scientifically accurate, but a lot of them were, there's a lot of truth and a lot of stuff. And I think it's, you can come at it from a few different angles and there was so much stuff. I know a few things have stood out over the, over the, the course of, you know, getting very familiar with his work, but that's probably, that's the only one when I, when I read it and you'll read it a lot where I'm like, ah, ding. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, Not I mean, quite. on that note, I mean, you got to associate the fact that he was a relatively small person and I mean, probably anecdotally, he's probably like most people can't eat more than 40 grams of protein at one sitting just because he was such a, a tiny human, right. uh, which probably easily could associate with like your rules with everyone else's. I'm assuming, I mean, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. I, you know, I think so. Like he's what, I think he was five, eight, something like that. Right. Maybe five. A ten. It's a good height, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you compare that to, to Arnold and some of those guys that, yeah, you absolutely need more than 20 grams in one sitting even, and you'll use way more than that. So. Yeah. So next question, kind of the first Renaissance strength conditioning coach, one that could do it all training, nutrition, supplementation, in some respects, psychology. When you look at a guy like that and you look at the, I guess maybe it's the influence of westernized healthcare of getting specialization and modern performance coaches getting really like locked in on a specific niche or specialization. Do you find that that approach of being a little bit of everything, more of a generalist, more of this Renaissance type of performance coach is better overall? Or do you find the modern evolution of getting specialized and very, very focused on a specific aspect better. What what do you say is like the ideal performance coach based off of what Vince was and kind of where we're at now as a profession? So I think a lot of that you know, we can we can look at Charles or at least I'm you know more familiar with him as as an example, a, a continuation of what what kind what Vince kind of did, right? At least from a performance aspect. Because when we look at Vince, it's not like Olympic weightlifting and shaving time off the ice to win gold medals, right? It's like, well, what do I need to, what do I need to be good at to get these guys jacked and shredded? Whereas Charles was like, well, what do I need to be good at to make them super strong, jacked, shredded and perform better. And, you know, so Charles was, was familiar with ART and all the soft tissue methods and acupressure and right. Everything else you can think of, but which is great. And that's what I've tried to do also, but, but I've also seen coaches, now commit to spending two, three, four years in massage therapy school so they can then go to ART and then get better at FST. And like, well, what do you, what do you want to be? You know, like that's great. And I'm sure you'll be able to help your clients six to eight years from now, but you're going to be a crappier coach as a result of diverting all of that stuff. And, you know, when you, if you look at how Charles actually learned that stuff, he didn't, he wasn't a licensed massage therapist. He wasn't this, he wasn't that. Like he took the courses, he learned the material, but he didn't go to school another four years to be a licensed massage therapist. So he could be a licensed ART practitioner. He learned how to do ART, he learned what he needed to learn about ART. And then he did it because he didn't give a crap about certifications because he was, you know, successful. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I start to, you know, young coaches and even some of the older guys I know in the industry have gone that route and are like, what are you, you know, that's great that you want to be a one-stop shop. I want to be a one-stop shop too, but what am I? I'm a strength coach and, and I need, I'm going to learn as much as I need to learn to be a great strength coach, uh, right? To be a great licensed massage therapist, you, you need to be a great licensed massage therapist. You need to, you need to take all your strength coach knowledge and cram that into being a licensed massage, massage therapist or, you know, or any, any of those other things. Like those are great tools. And I think a lot of coaches should know, a lot of those things, right? But you know, like the FRC and pails and rails and all that stuff that that I've seen you use to massively, you know, effective ways. If you wanted to be a master at all that stuff, you'd need to stop coaching clients at squatting and deadlifting and spend years like the guys who created those systems to master those systems, right? Or you can take a course, you can get really good at what you learned in the course, and then apply that to the people you're learning it to apply it to, as opposed to you know, going to school and getting off the coaching floor. Yeah. 
you know, it's um, an interesting note on that, which you mentioned it a couple of times of Vince focal point was getting people really muscular, really defined and finding the limitations to getting that outcome and finding solutions. Right. And he had to be creative and really engineer a process to get that. Charles is still before precedes a lot of this availability of information, but there's a lot more. And Charles was really keen on selecting what he needed to help people get really strong and really powerful. And to the point of like you and me, or me and FRC, this dynamic of how do I get people greater range of motion without pain or discomfort so they can produce more, right? More force, more tension, whatever it is. That is all a process that, but it also bypasses a very important thing that I don't have a very large scope from being just a strength conditioning coach in terms of hands-on work and that or PNF or fascial stretching or anything of that nature kind of gives me a little bit of a chipping away at the direct hands-on work that I can't do, or either I work with a large group or I don't have a limited, I have a limited scope. And I think that hopefully is coming across for young strength coach hearing about Vince Duranda for the first time. It's find out what you want to be and find the limitations to that based off your scope, your experience, your knowledge, and find the right tools to do the job. And, you know, for Charles and Vince and you and I, like that finding out what the, the bottleneck is or that limitation to be able to do that, it's probably the first thing. And then finding solutions to that. With that being said, do you think if Vince had as much exposure to what we have now in terms of the internet and a plethora of books and courses and, and all sorts of information, would he be rigid in his approach? And I know there's probably a lot to ask considering you probably never physically met him, but do you think he would take on a very open-minded, very, I guess, willing to learn type approach? Or you think you'd be like, screw it, I'll just figure it out myself and take this. I am, I'm the smart one here and I'm going to find out how to do this on my own. What, what, what type of guy would Vince be in this modern era of performance training? I think he's would be pretty similar to a lot of people like Charles and hopefully people like you and me where there's like, all right, well, if there's a better way to do something, I got to get it. I need to get, how do I get ahead of the curve? Right? So here's what everybody's talking about now. What's, you know, what drive, what's driven that and what's, what can I get ahead of? And because I, you can read his writings and he did change his mind. Like I think a lot Louie, I think would consistently say five different things, right. Depending on which way the wind blew that day in, in terms of like what he liked, Charles changed his mind on, on lots of stuff. Like, I think that's a hallmark of someone continually getting better and better and better. You know, I mean like the, the whole length and partial thing now, it's like, I, so I used to be, I used to love shortened partials because the pump would be, I think, you know, really good. And Geronda would do length and partials and shortened partials and partials in the middle and 21s and all that stuff, you know, and, and everything we're seeing now is like that, that shortened partial might have a place, but the, you know, the partial in the stretched position is if you were going to do one, that's the one you want to do, you know? So that's what, like, that's one of the things I've changed my mind on. And like, I'm not going to do as many shortened partials, or if I do, I'm going to do it very targetedly and not as often because the juice isn't there, you know, but yeah. I might do those lengthened partials a little more often now for hypertrophy, because that's, it's where everything says, you know, and it's where everything says the growth is. And that's, we've always known it's in the stretch, but now, you know, there's more and more research on, on stuff saying that that stretch position partial is a real big driver of hypertrophy. But then at the same time, you look at somebody like Vince and the people he's in the trenches with are the people stepping on stage. So, you know, I, when you look at a lot of this stuff, it's not changing. We're not seeing it on, on bodybuilders, right? You're not going to take a, a Mr. Olympia level competitor and be like, Hey, we're going to pop you in this 12 week study where you're only going to do squats and we're going to buy, uh, you know, dissect your biceps femoris. Right. So it, cause there's not a lot of these things that's actually changing elite level practical application just because the differences aren't, uh, you know, there's, there might be some statistically significant differences, but in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been done at none of this stuff, at least on hypertrophy has been done at the elite level. So then you also have that, that aspect of it, you know, is he'd, he'd be trying this stuff with elite level guys and see it either work 
or not work. Right. And then, so like, he might be one of those guys that actually gets upper level knowledge on this stuff is like, well, no, this, these lengthened partials might not actually be great for the elite. That shortened partial is actually better for this guy. That's already got a massive mountain of muscle, you know, for, for your average, like 18 year old, that's been lifting a few years and wants to length, you know, wants to get a higher percentage of his lower lat bigger for whatever reason. Like, yeah, that, you know, that stuff could be great for that one particular muscle if that's what you're looking for, but doesn't do anything for this guy that's already, you know, winning Mr. Olympia's. With that being said, because I think it's a great segue, he was a big proponent of trying to forge an aesthetic that would be very symmetrical, very aesthetic, or his vis- vision of aesthetic. And Lodge was influenced by a dancer's body frame, body type, right? Like a very big V taper, graceful, just looking extremely vibrant and healthy, right? The the classic pose of Vince on a side of a pool deck with this. You could tell he was like angling hard in that, you know, like this like quarter <laughs> turn and really try to accentuate Master his that, Yeah. With that being said, a lot of his exercise selection and execution was off the premise of we can almost create Michelangelo from the way we sculpt, right? So that term sculpting, I think, really is fostered from him. Through the execution component, do you really, do you think that, I mean, it's kind of like the body fat reducing, like spot reducing type of thing. Do you think we can really shape a muscle architecture to form a body on stage or can we just, or is it just inevitable? It's going to form the way it's going to form based off of where that origin insertion is. Like, do you find there's much validity to his stance that we can create an aesthetic that's like beautiful and, and like whatever is going to win a show or look in his eyes, beautiful. I guess that kind of, kind of the question. Do you think that's something that we can actually substantiate? I think so. And I think you can see it more so in the, the pre a little bit in uh, a decent amount in the golden era, but definitely in the silver and the bronze era, you can absolutely see different physiques. And, you know, like a lot of, a lot of the stuff was, we're going to choose a specific exercise because, you know, your, your upper pec doesn't have the same shape as the, I don't know, whatever. Right. You know, so there's, I think there's some muscles that can, that can have a bigger impact on like, so the lats, for example, right. The, the lower lat stuff, like, which is great if you need to bring out your lower lat, but you know, that's not a lot of the pre-steroid bodybuilding image because the lower lat thickens the waistline. Right. So a lot of what Vince would do would be Terry's major Terry's minor, like upper back type of things to broaden the shoulders expand the rib cage so that waist looks more narrow. Cause that was the objective back then. It wasn't just being, I mean, you know, nobody's waist looks narrow now, right? It's, yeah. it's not, I don't think anybody wants the waist of some of these guys. And, and even looking at the, some of the new divisions that are supposed to be the classic physique, there's still, you know, the, the people that <laughs> people that kind of dropped down to that were still a little bit too far gone compared to the others. Yeah. So I, I think you can do a lot of shaping with that, you know, I, but to that, to that extent, if you're not five, six, 7% body fat, and you can't see the striations and the, you know, the specifics of all of these muscles, then I don't think a lot of it matters. Then you just want to be balanced and, and you need to be balanced so you can express strength and performance. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of carryover if visual is your goal, but then there's also, you know, like I, I was just watching one of the movies that I prepared somebody for from you know t- 10 years ago or so and it's, and i'm just looking at the guy shirtless because that's why i trained him like ah if i had done this exercise this way that i know now that i didn't know back then i could have completely changed the shape of that because i've seen it happen you yeah. know like i'll use myself as a great example right i've always been a strength presser so i've pressed mostly with my arms and i've had very minimal chest development and then you start changing the way you do dips changing the way you press with a barbell to actually develop the pecs rather than strengthen a movement pattern, you know, via strengthening the efficiency of the muscle group. Like you can really pinpoint those things. And I've seen it change in myself and I've utilized that concept with competitors too. So that was, you know, it was one of those things where like, ah, does that really make a difference? If I like, if I do 10 by 10 on the uh, sternal fibers of the pec, just to bring that one up, like, am I really going to see a difference in this shape? Yeah, you will. Uh, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you do a few extra sets 
on Monday and that's the only time you touch it, then no, it's not going to work. You're not going to see the benefits from it, right? You've got to trying to grow that that muscle that's either too dumb to grow or won't grow or the guy just doesn't know how to use it in isolation. You know, so that like that's a big one, too, with some of those things. I didn't didn't know how to use my pecs effectively to grow them when I pressed because I used my arms and my pecs as much as I could to maximize the weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what you just mentioned is the exact same reason why I came in third place over second place in the Mike Katz bodybuilding invitational because no pec development, man. I mean, they actually told me that because I was like the guy who beat me for second, the guy who beat me for first place was roided out of his mind. I mean, it was absurd. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to sit there and say like, I got cheated. Like the dude was massive. You could just see it. His face was all growth hormone distorted. It was like, <laughs> like well, at least I'm, I'm ha- more handsome than that guy. But the guy who was in second, uh, I mean, he was tiny, just had massive pecs. And they're like everywhere else. I mean, it wasn't very symmetrical because it was a very sport driven type of programming. So excessively developed quads, upper back, lats, glute, but no pec. I uh, really, really like buys and tries were somewhat proportionate just because I'm shorter build and shorter levers. And I think it's just more natural, not much of a muscle belly, not like a peak. It's kind of a flat. So that definitely had an impact. So when you do like front double buy, like just nothing pop, you know, but I was, I was absolutely fucking shredded. I was at under 3% on three different body compositions between bod pod hydrostatic weighing and skin caliper veins all over. I'm just absolute like just cellophane all over my body kind of thing. (laughs) Then, and then, yeah, just massive quads and lats, just no packs, man. And that's why I came in third, which was my first show. My last show, I just hung it up. I hung up my, my bikini bottom that day and the took a break from iodine beach and never went back. Uh, But it definitely harkens to the idea of like, if that's part of the the judging and there's a way to engineer that outcome of developing a, you know, like Arnold would talk about it in Encyclopedia Bodybuilding. He just did calves every day till they got the, till they felt comfortable taking a picture of them, not in water kind of, kind of mentality. (laughs) That part's, you know, really important. But I do think with, even before, and this is an important segue now we have isolated machines. We have things that could directly target tissues in specific spots, not even just a muscle group in general, but we can actually like really target parts of that muscle and where it, where it creates tension from these machines that just weren't available to a guy like Vince. It was all, how can we do this with free weight? And if I can't do a free weight version of that, almost engineer or create a, or fabricate a machine that would isolate it. So, you know, a lot of the modern day things that we have today were the product of Vince's ingenuity. With that being said, would would you think if Vince was training someone today for a men's classic physique, how well would they do relatively speaking? Classic physique. I mean, I think they do pretty well. So I'll give you exactly. I used a guy, Last year, who was a coach who, you know, we were able to reduce drug intake, improve all, all blood markers, you know, and all of that stuff, almost exclusively Vince style. So I sort of put it to the test and, and we took second and everything looked really good. I think there were some things we could work on, but you know, it was, it was that, that division. We weren't trying to get, you know, roided out of our mind. It was obviously wasn't drug tested, but the fact that we could reduce that and change a few things, right? Cause you know, the, the coach was using not much, but you know, probably you probably just, you know, like most guys do, they're like, all right, well, if you know, if one's good, 1.5 has got to be better. Right. I'm like, well, maybe, but you know, if you, if you alter the diet, logic, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and so like a lot of the changes, right. The, the coach he was working with before, if you look at the program is, I mean, the, the number we probably cut the volume per day in half. So the guy was having trouble recovering when he started joints were trash. He was training multiple times a day all the time. And, you know, growth was okay, but we switched to all of these things. We're like, ah, all right, this you're going from 45 minutes twice a day to about 28 minutes 
once a day. We're recovering way better. We're shredding body fat like a fiend. You're actually eating more. Like one of his one of his comments was, how do you take away all my carbs? And I perform better and get leaner and feel stronger and look bigger. Like, well, this you, you have to get synergy, right? You can't take away all of somebody's carbs and then ratchet up their volume twice the amount it was before. But if I take away your carbs, cycle them in properly, cut your volume in half and maybe increase your training frequency and really cram in the density, lo and behold, you know, these things all work incredibly well and people feel better, you know? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's a great, great finishing right there. Rob, thank you so much, man. This is a, a cool little unpacking history here. So I hope everyone enjoyed this lesson. Yeah. Thanks buddy. My pleasure as always. Hell yeah. A lot to unpack in this one. So Rob made a lot of really good points about Vince Gironda and how influential he was. As you go back and listen to this, maybe look through the transcripts, go through the suggested resources and articles, think about how you program and think about, are you really going at it the way Vince would in regards to being creative, finding solutions, making sure that you're prioritizing the outcome first and foremost. Thank you guys for listening to this. Again, get over to phpodcast.com. Become a member, you get access to the entire module in regards to the web show, video format, the transcripts, suggested resources and articles, and a special video breaking down a lot of Vince's protocols. So I hope you guys enjoyed this, and we'll see you next week.